Hello, and welcome to another episode of I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. On today's show, we have Michael Oliver. Michael Oliver is the volunteer coordinator and executive assistant for MAPS Canada, which stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies in Canada. And what they what they do is they're researching the usage of psychedelic drugs, such as LSD, psilocybin mushrooms, and MDMA in the treatment of mental health um, disorders, such as addiction, depression, anxiety, uh, eating disorders, PTSD, you know, you name it. Uh, he talks about some of the, the progress uh, that their, their organization has made, as well as the future of them. And it just made for a very, uh, you know, it was a great conversation. So thank you, Michael, and uh, enjoy. And be sure to subscribe, like, share, comment uh, on our podcast. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind. And you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. and then send it to you if you okay. want it. Oh, no, no we're, it there. there we go. We're recording. Sweet. All right. Michael, how are you? I'm doing really great. Thank you. So, how sorry, you Michael, what was your last name again? Uh, Oliver. Okay. So, Michael Oliver, you you work for, for MAPS, correct? Yes. Uh, MAPS Canada, to be specific, but yeah, they're pretty similar, yeah. So, MAPS, what, what does MAPS stand for, just for, for our listeners? Sure. So, MAPS stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Okay, so and, and your goal is around using uh, psychedelic re- drugs or psychedelic pharmacology to see if there's a connection between that and therapeutic methodology. Is that correct? Yep, absolutely. So their map, maps like main goal is to fund psychedelic research um, into into looking into like yeah exactly like you say the therapeutic uses of psychedelics, uh, including cannabis, but you know focusing uh, maps itself focuses on MDMA. Right. So, so did you, sorry, did you say MAPS Canada is focusing on the, the usage of MDMA? Um, yeah, actually, both MAPS and MAPS Canada have been focusing on, on the uses of MDMA since, since kind of they started. So MAPS started in 1986, uh, and th- one of its main goals was to, I mean, the overarching goal is to help develop, like you say, these medical and like legal and cultural contexts to help uh, legalize um, psychedelics for for their careful use in therapy um and then the specific outlet that um, maps has looked at for that has been mdma and uh, maps canada kind of formed later in 2011 as a as an organization to help support the efforts uh, in maps usa specifically on the mdma phase two study Um, so yeah their focus has been on mdma okay now now again i'm not i'm not a uh a pharmacological chemist or anything like that but mdma is it is it a considered an amphetamine yes okay mdma is considered an amphetamine for sure right now what characterizes an amphetamine um an amphetamine well it's different than it's it's a drug that like basically the the common um 
descriptions of it are a drug that alters your mood and perception, right. uh, including your awareness of the surrounding option, uh, surrounding objects, and also like conditions, uh, whether it being uh, conditions, um, ap the appearance of conditions outside of yourself, like the environment, but also like the conditions going on with, within with inside yourself. So it's similar to, it's chemically similar to hallucinogens, because um, they also pr produce like feelings of increased energy, pleasure, um, emotional warmth, uh, these sort of things. That, but also distortion of time um but but yeah uh and methamphetamine is different than uh like the classical psychedelics for example like lsd right. or psilocybin because it doesn't act on the serotonin uh receptors yes because when i heard about maps and uh particularly the the, the psychedelic aspect of it i was thinking psilocybin mushrooms um lsd uh, DMT, things like that. And so when I hear MDMA, I'm like, you know, my mind almost goes more into like, okay, well, that's a party drug. So to, to stereotype the usage of, of these drugs, right? So what made, what made you guys think that, okay, hold on, maybe we can use this in a therapeutic setting? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, to be honest, I, I'd be curious myself to know more about the, the exact origins of, of where MDMA first came on the map. For, for maps, <laughs> yeah. um, I, and Rick Rick Doblin, I know. So Rick Doblin uh, founded Maps, and I think like what I can say is that the at some point along the line, I think whether it was a personal experience that Rick was having himself or who's noticing and other people, um, you know, people would have been using MDMA uh, recreationally, and oftentimes with, with psychedelic use, the the lines between uh, therapeutic use and recreational use are kind of blurred. So you might mm. take a drug for a recreational experience, but then you find some of its therapeutic effects. And so somewhere along the line, they realized that MDMA actually is really useful, could be really useful for treating PTSD. Um, and that was, you know, as a result of looking at the current treatments for PTSD, uh, post, that's post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, they're looking at the current treatments for that. And, you know, there, there are some good treatments out there, but they're not, they're not close to being great treatments. And so there's lots of room to improve there. And they, they, somewhere along the line realize that MDMA actually can, can really benefit people with PTSD. Well, I, I, so classically I think about drugs and particularly the quote unquote war on drugs mm. and how that's caused, you know, more problems than it has solutions. Um, has there like in terms of using these drugs, how has the, 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 you know, the clashing of the war on drugs with your progress been? Has it been a lot of backlash? Well, so I would say the, the main thing is that the, the government, there was a lot of research going going into these substances uh, a long time ago, right before the war on drugs started. So back right. in the in the 50s and 60s is when kind of research started to, to blossom in these areas. And a lot of people might not know that there's actually really rich uh, historical threads of research in investigating all sorts of things, including MDMA, but also looking into mescaline, uh, psilocybin, mm. and even LSD when after it was synthesized. And so after the war on drugs started, um, it basically just made it really difficult for these substances to be approved and like in a legal, in a legal way, obviously, there just, there just became so many new hurdles that would have to be overcome. So it's not impossible. And MAPS has been showing that uh, through careful and deliberate research through these different, like when you need to bring any drug to market, you have to take it through a, a series of trials. Right. And that's what these phases are phase one, phase two, phase three. And so it just basically, the war on drugs just forced um, MAPS and Rick and, and anyone who basically wanted to do any serious research on these drugs, it forced them to 
narrow down their, their options into this one kind of stream, uh, this one stream path of taking things uh, from, to market through this phase one, phase two, phase three, and which costs a lot of money. So basically the, the war on drugs just introduced all these really big walls where it's like right. you could have, yeah, it could have been easy. There could have been easier other ways to, to look into these drugs, but it just made it more difficult and more expensive. So as somebody who, you know, not, not disclosing, you know, the, all of where I've gone, but I used to be, I used to drink quite a bit, right? Like that was my party drug. And I look at people, you know, I hear of these, uh, these stories of people who have done MDMA, uh, you know, marijuana, for example, all these different drugs. And it's like, okay, they're not getting violent on that stuff. Whereas alcohol, alcohol is the antithesis of therapeutic drugs, yeah. right? Like, it's almost like, to me, weed opens your mind up, right? It's like an opening drug and and alcohol like closes you down and makes you myopic, right? Totally. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what your your take is on that. Yeah, well, I, I totally agree with you, and I think it's really interesting and, and startling to just see. There's a classic uh, graph that's um, that's gone around, and it just it just plots, and it's, and it's useful to contextualize alcohol in this graph because mm-hmm. it just plots, um, and maybe you'd be able to show it um, to to your listeners here. You they basically plot um, all the different drugs that we have available to us or, or illegal and not available to us and they just plot the the harm that it causes to the individual and the harm that it causes to others and you can see on this graph easily that alcohol which is a legal and very accessible drug it causes a lot of harm to individuals and it causes a lot of harm to others because you think about all the people that have unfortunately been victim to you know i know one example just being car crashes of mm-hmm. you know when you have someone else that's a drunk driver they put a lot of people at risk on the road that's just one example of how alcohol affects drastically harms other people and so yeah it's, it's just mind-blowing because you, you have that drug alcohol which is literally poison uh right. that we drink right like literally it's just it poisons our body um in a pleasurable way you could say to some people and so we have that as a, a total option um and yet it kills like millions of people a year and whereas yeah. on the other spectrum of the graph you have something like psilocybin which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms or lsd uh these substances cause they're non-toxic and they cause very little harm to the user and very very little harm to to others yet they're classified as schedule schedule one substances deeming them to have no medical benefit whatsoever yeah strange so like what because 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 what's very interesting about your work is that it's it takes into great consideration set and setting can you kind of expand on that yeah absolutely so set and setting are two are two terms that have really helped to it, it's basically given a lot of perspective to to researchers that are investigating the psych, psychedelic space um, and it's allowed them to basically f- formulate and and give answers to why a lot of people have even bad experiences with uh with psychedelics and so um set is kind of like your your mindset uh going into right um into an experience so everything like mentally that you're carrying with you into the experience um, and this could include maybe conditions um, that you have already, like mental health conditions, uh, or just even maybe personality traits, experiences that you've just recently been going through, like maybe you've just broken up with your girlfriend. Uh, this, these things are all um, kind of fall under that. And then setting is um, basically your actual physical environment. So if you, you know, look around, whereabouts are you taking the substance? Are you at a rave? Um, right. Are you at a music festival? Are you in your apartment? Are you 
on a in a living room space with a with a counselor that's there guiding you through the experience. Um, there's all these kind of environmental factors that also contribute heavily. So set and setting is basically just like a, a nice rule of thumb that was kind of developed just to bring awareness to the fact that a lot of the time uh, when people have really bad experiences on psychedelics, it can usually be attributed to uh, a poor choice in one of these areas. And I've definitely noticed that personally when I just meet people who've had experiences uh, like bad trips, for example, a lot of the time, I would say just personally, this isn't like exact, just, just roughly, I would say like 90 or 95% of the time when I hear about someone who's had a bad trip, you can usually trace it down to a poor choice that was made regarding set or setting. Right. Well, uh, who was it that talked about the rules for flight? Um, and a, a lot of this bad trip is that people are like resisting what's going on and they're trying to fight what's going on. And because they're fighting it, that's what's causing this like total adverse reaction. Whereas it's like, it's almost like an invitation. Like you should just go to that. Right. Totally. Yeah. Surrender. And like, I think it was Bill Richards who, who talked about the flight instructions and he wrote a book called sacred knowledge. He focuses a lot on, uh, he's a clinical psychologist, I believe, and focuses a lot on the mystical experience um, and psychedelics and, and the kind of their interaction, which is really interesting um, topic. But yeah, regarding the flight instructions, yeah, kind of what you're getting at there is like accepting and surrendering to the experience is a really big part of that. And so I think that would kind of maybe fall under mindset or set, um, just like your willingness to be able to go with the flow, as you could say, or just, yeah, be willing to accept what are, what's what arises. And, and it definitely comes back to the point about bad trips, because a lot of the time, even you might be going into an experience. And again, this, this maybe is more just my personal, from just my personal experiences and what I've noticed. Um, a lot of people um, you might be, have the intention to go into a, a psychedelic as a recreational for a recreational experience, but sometimes you just can't control the fact that a lot of stuff that's going to come up uh, might not be so recreational. It might be very personal and, and actually make you quite uncomfortable. And if you're not equipped or prepared to deal with that and you find yourself in a, on top of that, you find yourself in a bad environment, let's say like at a crazy party with tons of people that maybe you don't know, then it just, it just creates the downward spiral. And from there, it's very difficult to, to have a, a good trip and, and it's a lot easier to have a bad trip, quote unquote. Right. Well, and, and going back to this um, and I was getting set and setting confused, but I like that the idea of, you know, where these, these people, these volunteers, where are they at in terms of their set? So do you guys try to use a bunch of healthy normals or are you looking for something specific in say MDMA research? I think you're talking about PTSD. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So I think with, with our research, like I mentioned, we are focusing on MDMA to treat PTSD. And that's been like the main focus and where most of the money that MAPS has raised has been kind of funneled into in, in these phase studies. So for that, we're not looking at healthy normals. We, we are looking at right. people that have um, and PTSD. And usually it's people that actually have, have treatment resistant PTSD. So they've tried a bunch of other things and nothing has worked for them. And so this is almost like a last resort uh, treatment. And that seems to be the case in other areas too like if you look at john hopkins uh mm. university they're doing quite a bit of the work on psilocybin mushrooms and to treat depression and they, i think anxiety too and with them it's also the same like they're looking at people with treatment resistant depression or people with treatment resistant like end-of-life anxiety so it's people that you know have tried other things and they're, they're looking for something else to help them something uh you know maybe more transformative or just more potent and so yeah with maps particularly with the ptsd research we're looking at people with PTSD and so they they have all the you know common signs and symptoms of, of that uh, mental illness so what what is the end goal here because uh 
first of all, I, I think this is like truly wonderful work and any way that I can help get it out there, that's what I certainly want to do. Thanks. What, what is the end goal for, in terms of MDMA? Is it to make it, is it to make it like a, a, a controlled substance or to make it available to the public? What, what's yeah, the goal? I think there, there's maybe some different models and, and, and depending on how things move through the next couple of years, they'll, they'll maybe be different avenues that open, but for the most part, uh, MDMA is, is on track now to be a, to be a prescription medicine um, in 2021. Wow. So next year. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of the main idea. So the idea is that it, this would be not something that you can get over the counter, but it would be something that, you know, if you go to your doctor, it could be an option for him to prescribe uh, you to get MDMA assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. And so that would be the specific on label use as they would say. Um, but like with other medicines, um, that have been brought to market. Um, there's an on-label use, but there's also an off-label use. And so psychiatrists and psychologists who start to use this in their practice, they might, they have the authority to, you know, kind of, if someone comes into their office and they feel that they don't necessarily have the exact type of PTSD that MDMA is prescribed for, but they still think that MDMA would be able to help them, they can prescribe MDMA as like an off-label use. And so that kind of starts, um, in the community of psychiatrists and psychologists that will kind of expand the uses of MDMA. And then hopefully over time, um, it will be come to it'll be recognized as a more um, applicable medicine to other things too. But yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the, the track that MDMA is on right now. So there, there's a very interesting history that maybe not all of us know about in terms of uh, psychiatry, psychology, and um, drugs. And Sigmund Freud he was a known proponent of cocaine yeah. and he even had a cocaine related uh, uh, psychotic episode. Right. Yeah. I think I heard about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And uh, I mean, of course, back in the late 19th century, cocaine was completely, you know, available. Yeah. Right. But now obviously cocaine is uh, purity, all these things. There's so many concerns around it. So how do you get like pure MDMA? Cause obviously that's what's, going to be prescribed yeah so for exactly so through all the studies that we're that maps have been working on one of the the basic requirements is that the mdma has to be like 100 percent pure and so mm -hmm. uh, if people who maybe don't like know what, what that would even mean it you know when you talk about street drugs for example a lot of the time people uh, talk about molly which is like almost a, a another name for mdma but we should be clear that Molly, a lot of the time, just refers to the actual street form of it, which is often laced with other things, or it's just a combination of drugs. So it's not, it's usually the MDMA that you get, or I should say Molly that you get on the street is usually never 100% uh, MDMA, which is what people would want to go for. So what's made actually these, uh, the studies and the research that MAPS has done really, really expensive, like one contributing factor is the fact that they have to use 100% MDMA. And so this just needs to be chemically uh, and synthetically derived in a laboratory um, sorry, one sec. My Zoom just said that I've been signed out for some reason, but you can still hear me, right? Uh, yeah, I see. I hear you. Yeah. Okay, that's odd. All right, never mind. <laughs> it said I got signed out for some reason, because, uh, but I'm still here, so never mind. But anyway, sorry, what I was just saying was, that's kind of one of the main reasons why, uh, yeah, MDMA therapy has been so expensive is because it has mm. to be 100% pure, and to, and what it takes to actually derive synthetically 100% pure MDMA, I, I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Okay, um, but yeah, I'm sure it's a, le a lengthy and and precise process. <laughs> because here here's what I like. 
I'm looking as somebody who practices in the mental health field and is, you know, completely fascinated by it. Pharmacology, you know, traditional Western pharmacology is, it's just not really working. It, it, the, the, the cost benefit is just not there. Right. Totally. And that's why I think something like MDMA with the therapist there, like you could have some real breakthroughs for people. Of course, like you say, it's super expensive. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's the thing I, I like to use the word I kind of alluded to earlier, but transformational, that seems to be mm -hmm. uh, a key theme with a lot of these um, psychedelic therapies is that they really are transformational medicines, which is not what you're right. getting right now with almost, you know, all of the current um, prescription medicines that you that you take, I took a psychopharmacology course last term uh, in school, and I, I learned that every single treatment option right now, like the traditional Western treatments for for depression, for example, require chronic administration. And I think this is a really important point because, you know, you think about all these medicines, they require people to take them every single day, not only for like a couple of days, but oftentimes for years for some people, right? They're taking this every single day. And then I think one of the most amazing things and what makes psychedelics transformational medicines is yeah. that it's one time. Yeah. Potentially, right? Maybe two, but like a lot of people are having these, these amazing um, responses and healing episodes just through one use of a substance like ma magic mushrooms or MDMA or LSD. So it just, it completely, it's not even, it's in a whole other ballpark compared to these other medicines. Like it's, it's, it's really hard to, I think for the Western system to accommodate something like that, it almost doesn't know what to do with it. And I think one reason for that is just the, the money incentive, right? A lot of people will stay, the, you know, big pharma is, you know, and it's an industry and it's an institution now that does, you know, you could argue make, makes a lot of money off of people's suffering. And yeah. the very fact that people have to take these drugs for years is incentivizes profit, right? And so to have a drug that only like fixes and cures or, or at least greatly contributes to someone's healing in one, one dose, it doesn't match with that, with that, um, right. that money-making model. So, you know, not to be a conspiracy theorist or anything, but <laughs> it's almost like they're afraid of that right? Yeah, I think so. Because that's yeah. money out of their pockets, right? Totally. They're like, holy, you know, they don't need me anymore. Have you ever heard of, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is it called adiotrophic effects? Uh, it's no, one. I haven't heard of that. Okay. Well, I'm probably, I'm probably saying it wrong then. But by taking these antidepressant pills, you become depressed, mm. right? Like it creates, it creates the oh, right. illness. Okay. Yeah. I, I see what you're saying. Like it creates the uh, symptoms of the illness that you're trying to treat. Yeah. Like, like whatever was going on, you know, be it PTSD, something traumatic happened when you're a child or whatever, but that's why that happened. It's not because you're depressed. Like there's, there's meaning behind it. Right. Mm, totally. Like uh, one of my favorite uh, philosophers counselors is Viktor Frankl who survived oh, the Holocaust. And he yeah. talks about, you know, we have to have meaning and that's why that's where these drugs kind of come in. It's like, you have this effect and you're just like, whoa, I see it. And you hear these, uh, uh, is it called phenomenology? Yeah. Uh, it's annoying word to say, but yeah. Feminological, uh, symptoms or yeah. Yeah. You had it right. Feminology. <laughs> but, but you look at someone's experiences and it's like, like, that's what you're getting. It's not a numbers thing. It's like a subjective, this person takes this drug and they get this reaction and this has helped them. Totally. 
right? Yeah, absolutely. I like that you brought up Victor Frankl. I just finished reading his uh, book, A Man's Search for Meaning, like two weeks ago. Great book. Everybody read that book. Yeah. yeah, it was a great book. Yeah, yeah so, I, like, I like you bring him in, in his uh, theory because like you say, he's all about uh, meaning and that does relate back to, to strongly what we're talking about here because at the core of a lot of these, it's, I think it's about what's at the core of a lot of these symptoms and the, apart from psychedelics being transformational in the sense that they require one dose as opposed to, um, you know, like a hundred or a thousand mm. uh, sustained chronic doses. The other reason that they're largely transformational is, is because they target the root of the issue. I think they're not targeting the symptoms. So a lot of these uh, yeah. pharmacological um, interventions that are being used today, they, you know, they help some people and they cover some symptoms, but they also have terrible side effects and they are only just covering the superficial uh, layers of these of illnesses, whereas psychedelics and all of them to different, differing degrees, they really go in and they are somehow able to, to treat the root cause of the, the issue, which oftentimes comes down to some sort of trauma that mm -hmm. someone's experienced. And like you say, maybe some, some sort of lack of meaning or like a distortion uh, of meaning somewhere along the line. Well, and here's the thing going back to this chronic usage is we're keeping people sick. Absolutely. Right. And that yeah. to me, it's like, that Sorry. is, it's disturbing. Yeah. It's really disturbing. Right. How many yeah. people are suffering out there? So, you know, and now here's the other thing, because Canada and USA, they have very different drug and, uh, you know, uh, controlling agencies, correct? Uh, yeah, they're, they're slightly different. I think overall their structure is similar, but they're, they're called different things and they're, they have slightly different processes. Um, I think the, the DEA in States does a lot of, um, like controls a lot of what happens with, with the legalization efforts there. And then here we have in Canada, we have just the governing body called health Canada that does a lot of the similar stuff here. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty much the same. And they're, and they're on board with this. To an extent, I think, um, it's slowly getting there now that more and more research is coming out, but for the last, for the last, they, they really have had no choice uh, but to not be involved with it recently or just up until recently because of, you know, the fact that they were made illegal. So they, they, they don't really have, you know, it's the government for, in the States, it's, it's the government at the high level that decides what substances are uh, illegal or not legal, what class they're scheduled as. And so once they, all these psychedelics were moved into uh, their schedule, then it became really difficult for any other uh, body or agency to to do anything to work with them because they were just basically deemed completely um toxic and and they have no value for medical purposes right which is so strangely ironic because then you look at yeah, exactly. and adderall and stuff like that right so yeah. have you are you familiar with the uh, johan hari the author uh, yeah he, he wrote um homo sapiens right uh oh am i yeah. thinking of someone different you know what? Yeah, that's Yuval. They, they have very similar names, actually. Okay. Also a great book, Sapiens. Wonderful book. <laughs> yeah. uh, but he wrote this book called Chasing the Scream, and it, okay. it's talking about the war on drugs and how the war on drugs has created, like, it, it, it's like a weird self-sustaining thing. Like, by fighting drugs, like, I remember when I was in, in doing my undergrad, and we were learning about the U.S.-Mexican war on drugs, and there was Ronald Reagan and his wife, is it Nancy Reagan? I think and how, so, yeah. <laughs> and she started the war on drugs 
And it was like, you know, we need to stop bringing cocaine and crack into here. But it was like, okay, you're missing the point because you're fighting the what, but not the why. Why are people taking drugs? Right? Yeah, I feel like that was not considered at all when, yeah. when these things were rolled out, like at all. It doesn't seem like it. Yeah, because if you're an addict, you're going to do the drugs no matter what. And, and, and Johan Hari, his, his argument is that you legalize drugs to a certain extent so i don't know i don't know where you are with that but what what will that look like yeah that's a really good question so like determining what sort of post-prohibition models could exist is one of the main goals of maps and specifically it's one of the main goals of in maps canada we have like a committee called the drug policy committee and that's mm. one of the main goals of our drug policy committee is trying to figure out what sort of post-prohibition models would work because we assume that at some point these things are going to be like uh, unprohibited. They're going to move into a, a, a point and a place where they, they won't be, uh, you know, illegal substances. But then it's like, even once, it's not like once we have that, then we're in the clear because then you got to, like you say, you got to figure out, well, what sort of model are we going to have? Um, and I know there, there's no one, I don't think anyone knows for sure what that's going to look like yet. It's still, still hard to say. Um, I, I know something interesting, my, my boss, Mark Hayden, and, and also the, the founder and director of, of Maps Canada, he he coined kind of an interesting concept. Um, I believe it was him or he might've had inspiration from, from someone else too, but this idea of having like a psychedelic license. Um, mm. So just like you, just like you get a license for driving, you know, you, you learn about it, you take a course, um, you you have some experiential education around it and a test. You could have something, you can imagine something kind of similar for psychedelics where um, it just would allow people to have take on the responsibility of using these substances by themselves um, you could have different licenses for like, you know, you could have a license for a therapist, but maybe you could also just have a license for just someone, you just want to experiment with psychedelics yourself, you know? And I think as long as people have the education, then you can responsibly use them. And it's funny because we, you know, we have, you know, the, yeah, it's, it's just interesting to think about how it's going to come out because obviously we talked about alcohol already. Like that's a drug that is, is like, you can literally just kill yourself with it. Yeah. Um, if you want. And others. And others, and so many others. Thing about cigarettes, cigarettes, another drug that has killed, caused so much harm to our, to um, individuals and also society. That's available for people. And so I don't know. I think we need to take a better whatever post prohibition model we have. It's going to have to, I think, take into account a really good form of education, um, and maybe starting with like adolescence too, like informing people at a young age, like what are like uh, informing them of like a realistic understanding of substances, not based on um, kind of stigma and and these lies that have basically been fed to us since uh the reagan administration uh rolled out this this war well an interesting thing is uh you know people who are like don't do drugs they're <laughs> the people who have never done them yeah you know what i mean so totally. it's like well you don't know what what psilocybin mushrooms are like you don't know how much fun they are so you know bug off right but I, that's the other thing it's like with these we do have to have a degree of education because for sure 14 year olds should not be tripping LSD. You know, high school might look very weird if that's the case. Right. So it's like, what is it? What's a healthy age for the brain to start experimenting with uh, psychedelic drugs? That's a really good question. And I, I don't have a firm answer. I don't think anyone's, we don't have enough research. I, I'd mm -hmm. say to clearly establish a, a specific age, but I could link you to an interview actually 
with, with Mark Hayden, who I just mentioned, um, the director of Maps Canada, where he actually recently was talking with um, a gentleman on a YouTube channel called Psych Substance. Um, they were actually talking about this very question, uh, like at what age can you take psychedelics? And I was actually surprised. I hadn't talked to Mark about this before I saw the result of the interview. And, you know, he, the argument he made was just like, it does come down to education. I think in the interview, he said, like, there's not really anything that says that a 14-year-old can't use a psychedelic. And I've actually heard of a lot of people, um, if you think of like Eastern cultures, like I've heard mm, of individuals right. started using ayahuasca when they were 13, just because it was integrated into their culture, right? And right. As long as it's integrated into the culture properly, which would come from with education, right? I assume a lot, a lot of these, um, you know, Shipibo or Brazilian uh, Peruvian cultures, let's just say that, that have individuals that are doing this in their culture, there's obviously going to be some, some deep, there is deep integration with these substances into their culture. And it's not something that isn't done with a lot of care um, and attention. And so I think if we have something similar in the, it wouldn't be exactly the same, but something similar in the Western side of things, um, there's nothing really saying that if it just depends, Mark's argument was essentially, it depends on how responsible and mature you are. Cause you know, age is, you could say just a number sure. and people, um, people have different varying degrees of maturity, but then you, you know, you also got to think the other side of the coin too, is that there is something to be said about your brain developing, like your brain isn't fully developed. Uh, you'd mm -hmm. say until I, I think you're like in your mid twenties and depending on what, uh, gender you are. I think uh, they've said that, you know, males, I believe, take longer for their brain to fully develop than females. Yeah. Sorry, maybe it could be the other way around, but, but yeah. Mine didn't develop till I was 30, so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, but you're right. The prefrontal cortex, which is yeah. the, the area of our executive functioning, you know, it's not developed until, you're right, we're in our, for, for males, our early 20s, I, I, I'm pretty sure. Again, you know, I am not a... <laughs> you know that's not my area of expertise right, but it's something around that it, yeah it, it takes it takes at least until your 20s until it's fully developed and so yeah you wouldn't want to to stunt it in any way or or you want to make sure that that growth is um not interrupted by the substances and there's the, the honest truth is there isn't enough research i'd say right now to conclusively say anything about that right now um a book that i just listened to uh the doors of perception by aldous huxley have you ever heard that one yeah, I've heard of it. I, I haven't actually read it, uh, which is a shame. Uh, I read his other book uh, called The Island, which is a, a, a fiction book, but yeah. I've, uh, he's one of my, I've read a couple other of his like short stories and he's an amazing writer. And uh, yeah, I need to read that. Was it so, really good? Oh, it's, it's well, I, 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 as I said, I heard it as an audio book okay. and the ending sticks out so well. And it's just this idea of, we just want to escape reality because reality is just, you know, at least Western reality. And then he talks about all the other cultures. There's such a banality to it. Like, it's like, oh my God, is this it? And then we take certain substances and we escape, right? But going back to what I said about the difference between alcohol and psilocybin mushrooms is alcohol, it just like, there's just a darkness to it all. I don't know, just based on my experiences. Whereas at psilocybin mushrooms, it's like you're, I don't know. There's just, the world is a very different place, you know? And I, I, I don't know if you can speak to your own phenomenology with this, your own experiences. Yeah, no, I definitely could a bit. Like I, I definitely feel that the same way about alcohol. Like I personally grew up uh, drinking alcohol in like a, in a normal way, I'd say, um, you know, just in the sense that it was a drug that was kind of enshrined in the culture here. And mm -hmm. it's, it's something that just a lot of people do. Um, my dad, 
actually ran a bunch of pubs in England. So like that was his uh, line of business was running. Oh, you're, like, you're, you're from England. Yeah. I, actually, oh. well, I, I was born here, but my parents are from England. And I grew yeah. up in England for like eight years. I lived there. Um, I actually lived when I was younger. I can't remember this, but this is when I was like between one and eight years old, but I actually lived in pubs. Like I lived upstairs above a pub because my dad would own the pub downstairs. Right. So I don't remember too much of that, but I like now my dad, <laughs> it's kind of funny that he has like a bar and he's turned a, his man cave in his house into like a bar and that's like and that means a lot to him because a lot of his work was using alcohol but i just i i find it so interesting because he's traditionally you know he's never smoked cannabis or would never smoke a cigarette when mm. he's, he's highly against like cannabis and cigarettes and psychedelics and so um you know he's he's accepting now of kind of what i'm doing because he understands that there's something to it and obviously there's it's a field that's emerging now but i just find it interesting because obviously it's it's um it all comes down to kind of your cultural programming and, and for us for me alcohol was an easy part of that and so but what but then when i experimented with psychedelics like you say they just completely they're so potent and there's there's just so many layers to it and there's so much to learn i feel like um psychedelics can be used as tools like that was kind of my first introduction into using them i i didn't my first um experience with them i would say were recreational but at the same time like this was alluding to earlier that the line between that and therapeutic use is super blurred. And for me, they were, it was a recreational experience, but at the same time, it was super um, cathartic and empowering and, and, and just shed a bunch of layers for me to like start the investigation of myself. And that's kind of was my, my way into these experiences. And then it was only later that I started learning about stuff like what MAPS is doing and like how these drugs can actually be applied for, for mental illnesses. So, so how, how old are you, Michael? I'm 24. Wow. Okay. And you, like, you're a super knowledgeable guy. How did, like, what made you get into this? Because, uh, you know, here you are, you're working with uh, Rick Dobbin, like, you know, you're rubbing shoulders with some very influential people. Yeah. Right. I feel super honored and grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what got you into this? Um, well, yeah, I mean, it was just experimentation. Like I think in, in high school, I started smoking cannabis towards the mm -hmm. end of high school. Um, at the time here, there was a bunch of uh, Vancouver is an interesting city and it, ha it was at that time and still is like with cannabis. Obviously now cannabis is legal in Canada, but when I was graduating high school, it wasn't yet, but it was a really weird gray area. Um, and so me and my friends, we started experimenting with that. And I, I personally classify uh, cannabis as a psychedelic. So I would say that cannabis was my first um, entrance into that. I can attest to the fact that like, I think um, edible experiences with psychedelic, sorry, with cannabis can really feel like a psychedelic experience. And you can have some really crazy experiences uh, with edibles and even smoking too. So I'd say that was kind of my first um, experience with that. And eventually I don't actually smoke anymore uh, or, or take cannabis anymore, but that was something that I, I used to do quite a bit. Um, Cause I found it just a lot. I found it a better alternative to alcohol. Like alcohol, I always had the hangover. Yeah. Uh, there was no, there was never any aspect of learning or, or, or development. I just felt like I was. You can't remember. Yeah. Exactly. It's the opposite. Exactly. Yeah. You feel like shit and you can't remember any of it. So yeah. it's completely opposite. Whereas with cannabis, I feel like it added a new element to my experience and like allowed me to see things in a different way. Uh, it's, you know, it's cliche and it's kind of hippie sounding, but it, you know, it opened up my mind to these different um, realms of, uh, of perception, I guess you could say. Um, it opened new doors of perception. Uh, you could also say, um, <laughs> Yeah, then I, there was, you know, I think I met someone in my high school who had um, experimented with mushrooms before. And so that was my first experience with, with a traditional psychedelics was with mushrooms. And in a similar way that uh, cannabis kind of opened up 
a bunch of these doors, I, I saw that mushrooms did the same thing, but in a, in a grander way. And I was just blown away by like the noetic quality of, of these substances and also just how they, they connected me to a deeper sense of self. I think that was really um, what did it for me. And actually what really kind of got me more into it, because I was originally going to be studying um, uh, kinesiology. I wanted to do, go into physio after high school, but I, I had a really crazy um, mystical experience through meditating. And it was kind of my, I, I started pairing meditation with psychedelics and just these states of mind together and in combination with like reading more into it and learning about the people that have already done a lot of uh, exploration in this area, including Aldous Huxley, but also Terrence McKenna. He was a huge influence on me uh, growing up, which I felt might've been in some ways kind of, uh, uh, I don't know what the right word is, uh, kind of odd. I mean, he's a super, I don't know if you listen to too much Terrence McKenna, but he has some really strange theories, but I think some of the stuff that he talks about is just right spot on. And he really influenced me to, to look into these things more and take them more seriously. And then flash forward a couple of years, I was, I switched um, what I was studying I, I switched to cognitive science, um, which I was really interested in because it related to artificial intelligence, but also there was some relation to uh, psychedelics. And then here, I'm actually at uh, my university right now where I went to UBC and here uh, I joined the UBC Psychedelic Society. And then after a year, uh, I was the one that was leading it for the next three years. And so I'd say that was kind of, that kind of really got my foot in the door of the more like academic side of things. And that's when I started organizing events, having speakers come to university to like talk about these things, um, organizing social events where people could um, come and talk about their experiences. Cause I started to notice that breaking down the stigma is really like one of the key things that we had to do. And this, this was like four years ago before, cause even in four years, so much has changed in the last yeah. four years with psychedelics. Uh, it's obviously like now it's take it's almost coming to the mainstream i'd say and like all these businesses are coming into it there's so much money flowing into it from all these different areas now and anyways yeah um that, that's kind of how i how i got into it that's why well, I, I mean such a great point i mean uh you, you're talking about the legitimization of this movement because obviously people like uh oh my goodness steve jobs right i'm pretty sure he talked about dropping acid right? Because yeah, you have yeah, Steve Jobs and you have Bill Gates, right? Bill Gates yeah. was just like straight, you know, wah. but then you had Steve Jobs and it's like, this guy became Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. So obviously there's a legitimization there because had this effect, had this insight. And now it's like, okay, these guys aren't just a bunch of hippies, right? Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that, yeah. But, yeah, exactly. but, but there's something, there's something more to this. And I just think that in our society, you know, and I apologize for the listeners for sounding like a broken record, but, <laughs> but we, we look at ourselves on our phones and everything. And it's like, there's just more to this. And that's why I applaud the work that you guys do because you're trying to answer this existential question of what is really out there. And the way that we've gone about things is just not working out for us. No, it really right? is not. It's really not. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, what, how, first of all, you know, as someone who's a registered counselor, how could I get involved in this if this is something that, say, I wanted to use uh, psychedelic drugs to help in my therapy? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's another one where, unfortunately, we don't have like a super firm answer because it depends on how things are going to evolve. And obviously, with MAPS in particular, like we've talked about, MDMA has kind of been the main focus. And so right. that is, and that's going to have one specific um, application at first, which is going to be for PTSD. So if you're a counselor or therapist looking to doing work outside of that realm, uh, which, which most people are, um, 
I think it's it's going to be a it's going to be um, it's going to be slow to get there. But there are things that you can do in the meantime. Like there's uh, we're actually about to publish a psychedelic manual. So this is a manual for psychedelic guides, mm. um, and this is going to be available online for anyone to read. And it's literally a step by step guide on how to actually do psychedelic work and how to do psychedelic psychotherapy from the perspective of you know our organization, I suppose, and Mark and all and the people that have he has helped to contribute to this document and I've helped uh, editing it and it's, it's truly, it's, it's a wonderful uh, piece of work that I think will help a lot of people. So that's just one, one resource. I know there's a couple other resources like that around too. You can find information on how to do this, but um, ultimately I'd say right now, most people that are working in the space are doing the work underground. There's, I know for a fact here in Vancouver, there's a really rich um, underground scene of therapists that are doing this. Uh, there's Facebook groups cropping up where therapists are talking about, uh, practices and stuff like this there's um there's obviously a lot of at, at conferences and social events um obviously there's not many in person right now because of covid but uh before mm -hmm. that there was you know at conferences that's a great place for people to network and share their experiences and so i think just um networking is is obviously is, is important and just to, just to learning who's in, in the space and yeah connecting with people who in your city who might be doing underground work connecting with psychedelic societies um i know it in some cities, that's actually kind of the, the like I know across Canada, there's quite a few cities where there is no um, psychedelic research body. So there's there's not a MAPS presence necessarily in some cities. Like we only have an official presence in Toronto and Vancouver. So in other cities, um, the best bet is to, you know, look at your university that's nearby and see if they have a psychedelic society. And if they don't, and there's a lot of interest around, then create one. Mm -hmm. um, I, that's, that's something I'd recommend to some people out there, especially students. Um, who are looking to find that community because the community is super important uh, to have people to talk about these experiences with whether or not you're someone that's trying to do therapy with these drugs or if you're just someone that's had some psychedelic experiences and you want to share them with people. But I know I hope that answers your question a little bit. Yeah, no, that was very helpful because the other thing that I think about too, uh, and you mentioned the psychedelic guides and um, is like safety and insurance. Hmm. How, do, how do you figure that one out? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Um, I think that's that's something that's hasn't actually been uh, finalized yet because I know it's one thing to have safety measures. There's obviously a bunch of safety measures and precautions that are taken in the actual studies that we've been Setting, doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I know for a fact, like there's simple things like you can't, you know, you have to have the room set up in a, a particular way uh, in terms of it, you know, being like resembling like the living room. You can't have overhead lights because you don't want people looking right. uh, straight at them because they're too bright. You need to have a, a bathroom that's private and accessible. There's little things like that, that probably you would need to ensure that you'd have if you were uh, to make sure that you're not going to be getting into any legal trouble. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's stuff like that. They're trying to, they're trying to establish, but nothing's firmly set yet. And so when it comes to um, if you're talking about underground therapists doing this work, there, there is, I think I'm sure they, they have, I know from firsthand experience uh, with some of the, psychologists and therapists that I've uh, worked with and seen here in Vancouver, there are like forms that you sign and, and stuff like this, but I don't really know how much those would hold up in uh, legal court, considering the fact that they're doing something illegal to begin with, right? right. right. Technically they're, they're yeah. doing something illegal to begin with. So I, I, I'm, I can't really answer that question too well, to be honest. I'm not sure exactly, but I think when it rolls out legally, then there's, there's obviously going to be all this uh, a swath of uh, protocols and, and stuff that would be implemented to, to prevent um, harm done to the therapist um, legally, and, and you're and you're saying that MDMA is looking at being 
uh, you know, legally prescribed by a doctor psychiatrist by 2021. Is that correct? Yep. Wow. That's like, that's leaps and bounds, man. Yeah. It's crazy. And that's, I mean, that's all, I mean, that's all map. Like that's all maps, basically maps uh, since 1986. That's been their main focus. That's when maps was founded by Rick and uh, you know, Rick's the one that's had like, I think the most overarching vision for this because he's you know like you said he's been in the game for a long time now and maps is by a lot of people considered to be some sort of a gold standard in some ways of, of mm. kind of the work that's that's we're trying to do here in this space and i think that no matter what um outcomes we want to get like th- this seems to be the type of path that, we're, that a lot of people are gonna have to take but uh anyways um yeah like kudos to rick because and and obviously mark that's kind of followed followed him uh in 2011 when he he started maps canada to help support that but so like millions and millions of dollars have been have been put into uh to doing this and i think maybe that's something that people don't realize is that this has been a, a really lengthy ongoing arduous process uh to get it to that point so um yeah i think that it, there's going to be a lot of room uh, and need for celebration next year when that does happen uh because it's it's been a truly an amazing ride for them well I, and i i learned a little bit about the history of this in uh, how to change your mind Nice. by michael what's his Holland. yeah have you read that book i, I have yeah and actually oh, gave it man, to my awesome. i gave it to my mom and it was <laughs> a book that she, she's totally converted her and now she's like to, you know she wasn't like against it to begin with but now she's just like swung the opposite way and yeah you like, see it yeah 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 it's, it's an awesome book that's cool that you read well, and, and and i love that the history there and how timothy leary it's like you know for for those of us for those of you listening is he was this sort of, uh, uh, how would you, like almost like an angelic, yeah. uh, e- evangelic rather, sort of person in the psychedelic LSD culture. So is he a hero or is he a, considered a villain nowadays in the world of psychedelics? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I honestly don't know. I know probably as much as you do about him. I think like, I know he's, he was a psychologist. I know he was... He kind of started what was called, I believe, the Harvard Psychedelic Club, and he obviously, like you say, was a huge figure in the space because he he was the one that coined the term and then drop out. Um, you you guys can look it up uh, at home. Uh, just look up Timothy Leary. He he basically coined this term and it became like a slogan for the psychedelic um, movement, and it actually kind of turned people off. And I think that was a big part of the reason why, um, you know, Nixon came in um, guns blazing mm. against this thing because. It started to be, I, I think, to answer the question, I think Timothy Leary is seen as both a villain and a hero. Like, obviously, right. he, he, um, did, he did a lot of work in the space. He even conducted some studies, including, the, I think, the Good Friday Experiment, which was a really famous study that he did uh, looking at, um, I believe it was uh, mushroom experiences. But, but what he also um, did, unfortunately, was he made the movement seem like an antisocial movement. Like that he yeah, kind it's of counterculture. It. Exactly, yeah. counterculture. And, and what we're trying to do with maps and I, and what I hope and, and I, what I see other organizations doing that are cropping up is we're trying to modernize this movement to show that it's actually the opposite of that. It's pro-social and it, and it has always been pro-social. Like as part, as these medicines have been integrated in these cultures, it was never, it was never something that cast people outside of their culture of society. If anything, it did the opposite. It strengthened people's ties to themselves, their neighbors, their family, their cultures. And so it's always been pro-social and I think Timothy Leary is regarded as a, a villain in the sense because he may, he kind of, whether or not he knew what he was doing or not, uh, he accidentally or purposefully uh, skewed that and just made the movement, 
not didn't made the movement uh, stray away from stray away from what it actually was. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's I I I'm looking at your background here right now, and it's this uh, you know this temple like you know building of glass, oh, and yeah. it just makes me think like the world that we live in is so inorganic. At least that the one that I live in and looking at your background, the one that you're in, it's so inorganic and we try to control it so much. And that's, that's why I feel like we live in the age of anxiety and depression and all this mental illness is because the environment that we're in is just, it's not real. Right. And it sounds like for at maps, part of it is like, you know, we're trying to alleviate the symptoms of our own existential despair. Yeah. I have to think about it like that a lot of the time. I just feel like that, that's, we're, that's what we're doing in a lot of ways. So once you get this, this done with the, the 2021, you know, what, what is the future for MAPS after you get the MDMA licensing for 2021? What's, what's yeah. the future? Um, so there's a couple of studies that we're actually working on right now. And we're actually working towards the end. So I'll speak to MAPS Canada uh, sure. in particular. Um, but so we're, we're actually in the process right now of finishing up a fundraiser that we've been doing since um, last October and we're on track to we actually our initial goal is 150k but we we got that and so we've extended it to 250 and we're at about 236,000 right now towards that goal and the money that we're raising right now is going towards three future studies um, that we're going to be looking at uh, exploring and so um, the first one is an eating disorder study and so this is also using MDMA um, but yeah, we're looking at basically we've we funded phase one or we've secured funding for phase one, but we're looking ahead now to do recruiting. And this will basically be looking at, yeah, using MDMA to help treat eating disorders, which is, it has actually been shown in a couple areas to, to have a lot of benefit for that specific condition. And then another study is cognitive processing therapy uh, for PTSD. So cognitive processing therapy itself is, is a type of therapy that's been around for a while. Um, but the idea is to combine it with MDMA um, and also to look at doing that not only just for individuals with PTSD, but actually bringing, as part of the same study, bringing in that person's uh, partner. So they're like you're basically looking at the, a couple, and you're treating the, the one individual PTSD, but like involving the partner in in it as well. So it's kind of an interesting, an interesting take on that, um, on couples therapy. So those are kind of two studies that we are currently like funding, and then also I would mention that there has been talk that. Uh, Mark Hayden and Rick Doblin have have discussed potentially investing into ibogaine treatments, and so ibogaine is is another psychedelic that maybe not as many people have have heard of uh, compared to other psychedelics, but it's actually uh, it's a ibogaine is like the naturally occurring substance, and it's found in uh, iboga, which is a an African root plant, mm. and this is a drug that um, really goes deep to the core of of, um, of people's illnesses, and and has been shown to really help with opioid addictions. And so this really hits home for us because here in Vancouver, uh, this is a really big problem that we're facing. And I, I know it's not just here, like it's all over the world, it's, it's a big problem. But in Vancouver, we definitely have an epicenter of that. And it's actually, it hits really close to home because we, when we have our general meetings, like Map, our MAPS Canada community, we meet um, every month before COVID, we would meet. And we actually, our meeting building is right in the downtown east side, which is the epicenter of this right. pandemic. So it's always just an interesting contrast to be up in this building talking about psychedelic healing. And you look outside and there's literally people that are 
need uh, it. potentially overdosing yeah, on the streets that really need it. So um, that's definitely an option um, that we're looking into. But yeah, those are kind of the main goals, specific uh, um, projects that we're looking at doing. But I think ultimately the, the main goal is to legalize all psychedelics. So, so that's, that's what's ahead for us. You're, you're, you're preaching to the choir with me, my friend. <laughs> yes. uh, last, last question. Okay. So, you know, I, I have people in my family and I love them dearly. Uh, but I just, des- I describe them as in this regard, closed minded. So how do you convert someone with a closed mind? Like you said, with your mom, you gave her this book and you know, you won her over, but someone like your dad, how, how do you make people see the light? That's a really good point. I think maybe a, a good place to start, like obviously is, is maybe recommend recommending some videos or just information to send, but you know, oftentimes that not necessarily is going to be an easy way to, to do that. Um, you know, there might, it might take more than that. And I think ultimately what you can do, one of the best things you can do is just keep being awesome while also um, being an advocate for these things. Mm. And what I mean is like show the world that you can do amazing things. Like, I don't know, whatever, whatever it is for you, like being an awesome musician, being right. a talented athlete, like do all of these amazing things that you would do regardless, but um, make it aware to some people and maybe not everyone, but, um, the people that matter, like make them aware that you're, you're actually using these substances in a productive way. And it's actually maybe helping you be better at these things. And so you are still becoming a productive, because I think people often think that if you do these drugs, it's going to make you a bad person and you're not going to be a productive right. member of society. But if we can just, so I think without even saying things like just by your actions, just by being that productive member of society, and maybe even being using psychedelics to help make you a better version of yourself. Um, I think I like to hope that it would just naturally people will start to understand and, and it's going to happen like with everyone, right? Like it's not just going to be you converting your mom or you converting your dad. It's, it's going to be them hearing about it from their friends, son, or like their friends saying that their son also mentioned it. Like it's right. going to be a slow effect and everyone's involved. Right. So, yeah, so yeah that, that's what let's, I would say. Let's have an open dialogue versus a closed dialogue. Right. Totally. And that, that's so important too. And, and yeah, just not, I think a lot of people also maybe are, are scared to bring it up with their parents. I know sometimes it's can be really hard for people. I was really lucky because, you know, although I said my dad's maybe not as into it as my mom um, and maybe my mom took a little bit of convincing, like that's coming from the point of like their, but I think their base was still like plus 10 or something. Like they were just super open to it. And I'm lucky that they were, but I know for some people like, you know, they might, someone might be disavowed by their parents if they told them that or depending on what culture you're in. Right. So you do have to be careful, but I think doing your best you can to really be open with your, parents about this and just and and show them the the benefits and just the the truth around these things i think goes a long way awesome well you know and and kind of just a closing little remark here but uh how will this look like for the world of sports because there was this pitcher in the mlb and he pitched a perfect game on lsd which i'm like ah what yeah yeah to me that sounds like a hindrance (laughs) right (laughs) like that's not a performance enhancer that's a performance dehancer Anyways, (laughs) Anyways, <laughs> you know, it makes me think like, what will that yeah. look like for professional athletes? Yeah, um, I wonder, I've heard of people microdosing and even doing small doses right. of mushrooms, like for sports like skiing, I've heard it, it's helped a lot of people be better at skiing and also cannabis too. But, um, but yeah, I wonder <laughs> what that will look like. So, so much around, around the psychedelic drugs is, is the, the, from what I hear is diminishment of the ego. Right. It shrinks your ego down. Right. So, yeah, which I absolutely. think is something that everybody 
in this world can benefit from. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Right? Yeah. So Michael, uh, you're doing wonderful work. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, for those listeners, how can they check out more about the works, the work that you are doing at, uh, at maps? So yeah, the best thing to do is just for maps, Canada, just go to mapscanada.org and you can find out pretty much all of our information uh, there. There's links to our, our fundraiser campaign, which like I mentioned, we're currently, we're currently on right now and looking to, to move into the final stretch. There's information there on our current studies or past studies. There's information also if you're in the Vancouver area or Toronto area, uh, we have lots of volunteer opportunities. Um, and so uh, that's actually most of my job is, is coordinating volunteers. So my email is there and you can reach out to me personally. I'd love to, to chat with you about that. And yeah, any other questions people have, they can find myself, my email and even Mark's contact on the website too. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Robert. This was awesome. All righty.